Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. This year has gone by incredibly quickly, but it's always nice to pause and take stock. What's something you're proud of in 2024 so far? What's something you still want to accomplish this year? I know I'm guilty of falling into a routine and not always thinking about the bigger picture, but as the great Ferris Bueller once said, life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you can miss it. So it's crucial to take a moment to celebrate your wins and make adjustments for the rest of the year. Therapy can help you contextualize your progress and set achievable goals for the next six months. As you surely know by now, it's not only for people who have experienced major trauma. Therapy is helpful in all kinds of ways, including learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. If you've been considering trying therapy, check out BetterHelp. It's fully online and was specifically designed to be flexible and customizable to your schedule. To get started, just fill out a brief questionnaire that matches you up with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit BetterHelp.com FilmDaily today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash film daily. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Wednesday, January 6, 2020. On today's episode, oh, my God, it's not 2020 anymore. Darn it. It's now 2021. Okay, let's do this again, guys. I'm going to get it right this time. 20, 2021 is going to be a better year. Here we go. <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Wednesday, January 6, 2021. On today's episode, we're going to discuss what we've been up to at the water cooler. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Serretta. And joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film Managing Editor Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. Weekend Editor Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. Senior Writer Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? And Writer is Kwai Bui. Hey, everyone. And Chris Evangelista. Hello. Okay, so let's let's talk about what we've been doing. Uh, Jacob, what have you been up to? Uh, I've been underwater this week taking care of our end-of-the-year content. Uh, Slashroom always runs their end-of-the-year stuff in the first week of January to give all the staff a chance to see as much as they can, give our readers a chance to see what they can before they enjoy it. And this year has been a lot of fun. Uh, Just very, very busy. Everybody has top tens. We have a couple freelance pieces, like uh, running soon. We have Matt Matt Donato recaps 2020 cinema in, in in terms of dishes and food so it's like the eggs from mandalorian or the breakfast sandwich from birds of prey the oily cakes from first cow it's actually a really really amazing look back at 
a year of pop culture through the through the most delicious or interesting food dishes that we saw. Yeah. So, but yeah, so we also have you know more traditional stuff as well. And uh, podcast listeners know that we ran our or rather the first half of our top fifty moments of the year debate yesterday. We got halfway through in two and a half hours. It's hope you enjoyed that as much as I enjoyed wrangling that. Uh, so yeah, we have a, all week. All week this week is just looking back in twenty twenty film and you know. What was the best? What was the most memorable? Yeah. And so far, lots of good stuff. So make sure you check that out. And that sec- second part of that discussion is coming tomorrow? Yes, we are recording it tomorrow with plans to publish the same day. So uh, fingers crossed things go right and you like to hear our top 50. I think we had 24 moments locked down at the, <laughs> at the end of the first episode. And uh, with all the streaming services in the world, I heard that you subscribe to another one, yet another one. Yeah, I subscribed to Discovery Plus. I mean, it literally has all the laundry folding shows my wife and I watch, and that seems like a backhand compliment, but it's it's being able to put on HGTV shows or Discovery shows or Food Network shows and not have to worry about commercials and just let it autoplay while we, do, while we do stuff, whether it's playing board games or whether it's, you know, literally folding laundry, cleaning the kitchen. It's a tremendous resource for that kind of background chill out pay half attention to entertainment and that's something that is missing from a lot of streaming services i think and discovery plus has all those shows that i just like having on i find well, what are the shows run down the list of shows that you and your wife like like to have on in the background oh just anything from network literally anything of anybody cooking uh chopped uh um for example <laughs> uh but literally like my wife watches anything on hgtv um and yeah. then, there's, then there's more vital stuff they'll talk about in the um we watch the section, but like there's BattleBots is on there, and the new BattleBots spinoff is Discovery Plus exclusive. So it's <laughs> it's just stuff I like. I mean, and it's weird to see stuff I like next to like TLC, which is mostly garbage, you know, reality show nonsense. But for what you're paying, I'm, I think I'm paying six ninety nine a month for the ad free version. And, well, is yeah. there a lot of like like original programming on D- Discovery Plus? They've announced quite a bit. It depends on what you're in, uh, into, like um uh. The, the gains, the, the couple who, you know, used to have, like, the biggest shows on HGTV before just created their own network or have unique stuff there. So it's a big draw if you're my wife. But, you know, it's also, if you're me, a BattleBot spinoff. It is also, it's, just, it's going to be just, I really recommend looking at the list of things that they have available for streaming and coming to it. Because there's a lot of stuff, a lot of originals. And I will say, a lot of it doesn't appeal to me. There's a lot of stuff on Discovery Plus I will never watch. But in terms of having a ready-made library of so many thousands of hours of shows it is one of the biggest bargains uh in streaming if you if it happens to contain things you know you will watch yeah this isn't an advertisement for discovery plus where we are not being paid by discovery plus but i i will say that if you are a verizon wireless customer or if you have verizon as your internet service i learned that you can get six months free of discovery plus i'm not sure if it's the ad free version or not but uh, so if you have that, you may want to look into that. I, I yeah. think they also do Disney Plus on that, too. So yeah. like, like I said, it's important to say, like, yeah, I'm, you should definitely research this and make sure it's, it has things you want. In the case for me, as somebody who likes to have TV on while I'm cleaning the kitchen or cooking food or, you know, organizing cards in a card game, which I was doing the other day, I was literally organizing car, a board game, a tabletop card game into binders while I had uh, while I had Food Network stuff on from this. I find it to be a pretty much the most relaxing streaming service out there. Just no, you don't need to pay attention to any show you put on. My wife put on Amy Schumer Learns to Cook for like four hours the other night, and we just had that on while I took care of other things. It was great. So that's Discovery Plus. 
HT, how have you been relaxing? I've been, you know, kicking back with a crossword. I have described before on this podcast how my very specific vision of adulthood or successful adulthood is Sunday morning, um, getting a coffee, doing a crossword puzzle, and uh, having, I don't know, a baguette or something. <laughs> and <laughs> I am one step closer to that dream because for Christmas, my parents got me a book of crosswords, specifically a book of the best of the week Monday crosswords from the New York Times. Um, Monday, unfortunately, is the easiest day of the week in terms of the New York, New York Times puzzles, but that means that there's one for every day of the week and I can go through each of them in my, you know, um, journey. <laughs> to wait, wait a second. What? I, I didn't know this because I haven't followed crosswords, but why is Monday? Is that because like, every, you know, it's back to work and like no one wants to like really work hard at the crossword on Monday? I guess so. I think it's just it's a, a increasing levels of difficulty with each day because Sunday is always the most difficult. So Monday would, I guess, naturally be the easiest. And then you get harder with Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, et cetera. Um, I don't know what the specific reason is, but I guess I think that makes sense. You know, Monday, no one wants to do anything. So they want to. <laughs> Bang out an easy crossword. And um, so far in the two weeks that I've had this crossword book, I've already done nine crosswords. It's very wow. exciting. Congrats. Thank you. I just I just think it's insane that like New York Times is like the inverse of like what movies does where like, you know, <laughs> Sunday is their biggest day where, you know, the most amount of people buy their newspaper and they're like, no, we're not going to give them like the mass appeal, blockbuster, easy, you know, sit back, you know, crossword puzzle. We're going to give them the hardest. We're going to give them the art house film of crossword puzzles on Sundays. <laughs> yeah. I like that comparison. <laughs> okay, uh, let's move on to what we've been reading. Jacob, what have you been reading? Yeah, I've been catching up on more comics recently. I want to recommend uh, a newish series. I just finished this first arc of six issues. It's an ongoing, so it should be back. Called "Bat Texas Blood" uh, from writer Chris Condon and artist Jacob Phillips. And if you've read the comic series uh, "Criminal," uh, which is a long-running anthology series uh, that follows various, you know, criminals uh, whose lives intersect, it's been running for years. That Texas Blood reminds me of a lot of that, but sort of a, but with a Texas twist. It's set in the, in the, in uh, West Texas. It's full of. Uh, deserts and you know sheriffs with cowboy hats and it's very much uh you know american southwestern noir it's bloody and darkly funny and it's the kind of story that i find refreshing in comics because comics so often you know want to have whiz bang pow in them by their very nature and this is a very low-key very drawl um southern noir and i'm enjoying it a lot and the, like the first six issues are out i think it's being collected into a trade paperback you know out i think soonish and then i'll keep on going after that so that's that texas blood i also i finally finished the final issues of sex criminals a at one time massively popular and widely talked about comic series that really petered out like hardcore <laughs> in its back half uh i think it ended up running 30 issues peter i know you were a fan of this did you ever finish this um i did not i <laughs> i have a subscription to my comiXology app so i've been paying for it uh, up until you said it ended recently. Yeah, the last issue. Uh, the last issue was I think two months ago, and then the last six issues been sitting on my uh, to read pile for so long. Me just staring at them, going, "I do not want to finish you, but you're here." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Basically, the same thing's happening with me, but like it's a virtual to read pile, and it's probably you know 
I don't know, probably like 20 issues or something. I don't know. Yeah. I think it's 30 issues total. And this is what the comic series that's about a couple who realizes that um, uh, when they ejaculate during sex, they can freeze time. And it started off as a joke between uh, writer Matt Fraction and artist Chips at Arcy. It's like, can they make this into a comic series? And the answer was yes. It ended up being this really, really funny science fiction fantasy comic about people with sex powers. And, it w- and, it, and they decided to try to rob a bank by freezing time after having sex. And it's a truly bizarre wonderful very funny series for about 12 issues and he realized uh they only they only have enough story for about 12 issues and it spins its wheels and becomes nonsensical and goes down avenues that doesn't feel prepared to explore and i feel really crappy for recommending it to so many people um after like the first 10 issues saying this is so good this is so great it's so smart and funny and strange for it to really really peter out and become something so disappointing uh I think, I think that first two arcs, so the first 10, 10 issues, so it's so good and so funny. And then it, it really starts to become an absolute chore to go through. Yeah, I think I'm like 15 issues in and I stopped kind of like wanting to read it because I think it was starting to peter out at that point. But I, I agree with you. It's so smartly funny. It, it almost like reminds me of like Fight Club in a way, like David Fincher's Fight Club. Yeah, it's an interesting um, comparison because uh, I think it's a bit more emotionally mature by design even though it's about emotionally immature people but yeah i think it's an interesting uh double feature for sure yeah uh and what else have you been reading oh yeah um the uh omnibus collecting uh the first massive chunk of scott snyder and greg capullo's batman run uh came out Uh, it's been out for a while but went on deep sale on amazon so i bought it and this was this is noteworthy for me because i read comics before uh dc relaunched itself about 10 years ago with the new 52 initiative but i never read them in issue form I waited until they were in trade paperback. And the Snyder Capullo run of Batman was the first, like, must-read comic I read month to month. Like, getting subscription, reading every issue, buying every issue. I have them all in a box somewhere, and I rebought them in omnibus form so I can revisit them because they're great. Uh, Scott Snyder is very much a horror writer. Most of his non-superhero stuff is horror-driven, so his take on Batman is very creepy and unsettling. Batman's up against a, a city and a rogues gallery who are... Uh, Treated as horror characters. And Greg Capullo, uh, he drew Spawn for a long time, so he's familiar with drawing creepy things. And it's his dream team, and they're still working together. They still do special events together, and uh, they're still telling the Batman story to be in Batman, but in you know different ways throughout DC Comics. But uh, this is a really, really strong, uh, interesting take on Batman, and one that I'd actually recommend to uh, people who maybe aren't big fans of superhero comics in general, because it really is this conspiracy horror uh noir flavored tale as opposed to you know just batman punching things although there is a lot of batman punching things <laughs> okay uh, let's move on the crest chris you've been reading something that uh both jacob and i have talked about previously on this podcast uh yes it's uh disney war and it's all about disney in the the late 80s and 90s and leading up to uh the early 2000s and it basically covers the reign of michael eisner at disney and uh, first of all, the book is great. So it's, it's a great read. It's, it has great insight into, uh, you know, the behind the scenes goings on at Disney. And uh, I'll admit, like, even though I knew who Michael Eisner was, I really didn't know much about him. And uh, after reading this book, man, he is a uh, horrible person. He is just a monster. Um, and as weird as it sounds like this book made me realize that, like, I guess all businessmen are just really 
dumb selfish narcissist because <laughs> everything Michael Eisner does in this in this book is very trumpian in that like anytime anyone criticizes him he's like ah oh, you're disloyal to me and he doesn't want to listen to anyone else and everything he says is just the bottom line and just reading it I was like this is like exactly how Donald Trump acts and you know that might be fine in the world of business but I guess the moral of the story here is please stop electing businessmen to be the president because it's a bad idea um but this this book is 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 very um it's just fascinating and it also confirms that to be like a big Hollywood executive you really just kind of stumble into the job like uh, like there's like a rotating door of executives in this book that just come and go and time after time, they all just seem like they, they all just kind of just like lucked into the job. Like they don't really know anything about movies. They don't know anything about anything really. They just happen to like be powerful guys who are just like, ah, I work at Disney now. And uh, they, they last a little while. And then Michael Eisner pushes them out the door because he can't work with anyone. So um, it, it's a, it's a great, it's a great book. It's a great read. Um, I read um, before this, the men who would be King, which is about the founding of DreamWorks. And I would really recommend, I wish I had read this first, because this is almost like a prequel to that, or that's like a sequel to this because the, they both involve uh, Jeffrey Katzenberg who worked at Disney and then got pushed out and then went to work at, at DreamWorks. So if you're, if you're looking for a good uh, double feature of books, I'd recommend starting with Disney war and then jumping into the men who would be King. And I'm also, I'm also reading now, um, hit and run, which is about, uh, producer John Peters. And that also underlines my theory that you really don't have to know anything about anything to be a very rich and powerful movie producer. You just, you just run is so dangerous. <laughs> it's so, what a, that, that book is just one nightmare after another. It gave, gave me an anxiety attack. Right. So if, if you don't know, I'm, I'm sure a lot of people have seen the, the famous Kevin Smith video where he talks about working with John Peters on Superman Lives. But basically, John Peters was a hairdresser. He was a hairdresser to the stars in Hollywood. And he he became Barbara Streisand's hairdresser. And he basically used that to first he started he ended up in a romantic relationship with her. And then he just basically parlayed that into becoming a movie producer. He, he like dropped out of school in, in like the seventh grade. He, he doesn't know anything about movies. He just like, ah, I'm a movie producer now. And it worked. And he became this very rich and powerful guy, even though he's clearly an insane person who literally physically assaults anyone who disagrees with him. So uh, that's, that's the trifecta of books right there. Uh, Disney War, uh, The Many Would Be King, and Hit and Run, which will give you great insight into Hollywood and confirm that no one in Hollywood actually knows what they're doing. Uh, Chris, have you read the devil's candy? Oh, I've read that too. Yeah. That's great. Too. I, that's I feel like that, that, that quartet is invaluable for people listening to this podcast. You want to know how everybody in Hollywood does not know what they're doing at any point. I got to say, what, what sorry, is devil's candy? It's about the making of uh, the bonfire of the vanities, uh, the Brian oh, De Palma okay. movie. Um, I got to say that like, as great as these books are, they're also kind of like, dispiriting like there's this part in disney war where the writer sits in on just a meeting on movies and you can see how little thought goes into anything like they're talking about uh the princess diaries too like we should make the princess diaries too and i'm not i don't have the conversation for him it's like i read but basically like uh michael eisner is like we can't call the princess diaries too it, it sounds dumb 
we should call it princess in love. And everyone in the meeting is like, great title. Like that is not a, that's a terrible title, but, just, but like, they're all just like that works and they move on. It's like, what the fuck? It just, <laughs> it's like, you know, I love movies. I love the art of film, but reading these behind the scenes things, they just confirm that, you know, the, the people, the movers and shakers, the people who call the shots, they really are just, I don't want to say dumb, but they're, they're, they're really just kind of like oblivious to how anything works. And they just sort of just luck into their careers. And I don't know, man, it just, it just seems like anyone, if you have the right connections can become a very rich and powerful movie producer who doesn't know jack shit about movies. I have two things to say here, Chris, and I hate to be the person that's going to defend uh, rich, powerful. Oh, well, before you jump on this, I just want to add that (laughs) Disney War also makes Bob Iger look really, really bad. I got to say, like, like, I I knew very little about Bob Iger, too. I I just knew he was the Disney guy. But reading this book, he he was like a weatherman that became. Yeah, (laughs) but basically all through Disney War, um, Bob Iger, he just like he as the book starts he seems like an okay guy and then he realizes ah if i just suck up and agree with everything that eisner says one day i will run disney and he basically just throws everyone under the bus he doesn't care who he hurts and it was just like wow these people are just terrible human beings and you know maybe you just have to be a terrible human being to run a very successful company i don't know Anyway, go ahead, Peter. Defend Disney. (laughs) No, I wasn't going to defend Disney. I was going to say that I don't think all movie executives are that bad. Hopefully. Hopefully some are okay. I would think that some. I don't know. Like, I feel like ones that come out of creative, like, um, I don't know. I don't really know much about Jason Blum, but I would assume that he has more, like, like, sense in him. No? I I don't know. I mean, I guess we'll have to wait and or, see. Or like, look at like, I don't know. Like, I guess this is another arena, but like, look at Steve Jobs. I don't think like every executive, like executive that runs a company is completely clueless or locked into it. I don't know. He was by all accounts, he was kind of a, an asshole. Too. I just, well, yeah, I, just true. I just think you have to be really in general. I just think you have to be kind of just like cold hearted to succeed and as as bleak as that sounds I, and i mean like massive i don't mean like minor success i mean like if you want to be yeah. rich and powerful you literally have to be okay with just crushing people and wait wait chris what are you talking about mark zuckerberg no have you read uh the psychopath test by john ronson <laughs> I have read that too. Yeah, I've read. I think about that a lot about how it suggests that psychopaths are everywhere. They're just just not the ones who murder people. And I think that most corporate executives are low grade psychopaths. And I think this feeds Uh, right into that. Yeah, it's hard. It's like I I read these books and I'm like, are these people like just really stupid or are they like incredibly evil? It's like this very weird line where it's like you can sort of shrug off their behavior if you think like, oh, they're just oblivious, but. If they're not oblivious, that just means they're really morally bankrupt. Yeah. Uh, by the way, I'm not sure if you've ever read this, Chris, but uh, William Goldman has a series of books, Adventures in the Screen Trade, and there's another one, which I, I know is not from an executive level, but it's from a screenwriter level, like looking up, which I think kind of falls in the same kind of like category of books that you might want to check out. Right. And it's also earlier, too. It's like in the 70s and 80s, so I'm not sure. Yeah, no, th- there might be some good stories in there, I think, even to this day that are really interesting and show, you know, 
I think he paints it with the the picture of nobody knows it, you know, anything in Hollywood, which is kind of, you know, forgiving of bad executive decisions. But um, <laughs> yeah, uh, we were talking on our Slack channel after we were talking about you, you reading Disney War. And I forget who said it. It was either you or Jacob said, like, this would be a good movie. And I was like, this would be a great, like, Netflix miniseries. I would love to see, like, um, like a show that was, like, an adaptation of this book. And also, you know, uh, The Men Who Would Be King. Uh, like, I, I feel like that could be incredible. But, like, what, what did we come to the conclusion that, like, it's not possible while all the people are alive? To be lawyers. <laughs> Players, I, yeah. I guess in theory you could talk you could have the character like the people in a movie but i feel like since like disney has such deep pockets they wouldn't allow like the disney name they would have to like change the name or something It'd be like disney with a z or something yeah. just to get around uh yeah being sued but yeah but i would also love to see this like adapted or even like a podcast would be kind of cool a really cool little podcast someone get on that thank you yeah that'd be cool or even a documentary, anything, something. Give us yeah. more. Give us something so we can watch it. That's all I want. <laughs> okay, let's move on to what we've been watching. Uh, Jacob, what have you been watching? Well, this thing that both Brad and I watched. We watched uh, two movies: <laughs> uh, Wolf Walkers. First up, uh, this is a new film from uh, Cartoon Saloon, the Irish uh, animation company, still working in two D. And uh, I think Wolf, Wolf Walkers is this magical, miracle, perfect little gem of a thing. It is. A simple story, beautifully told. And compared to something like Soul, a movie I absolutely adore, you watch Soul with its really striking animation, and you go, oh, computers did that. And you can, you can, be, you can be bowled over by it, but still, the computers did that. And you watch Wolf Walkers, which is 2D, and it does things you've never seen before in any kind of animation, and you think, wow, how do they do that? There's a magic in Wolf Walkers. It's a movie about magic, and it's it feels inherently magical. Every frame is full of life and beauty. The performances are so... Uh, wonderful and really match the character designs, which are themselves really stunning and remind me in a weird way of maybe not a direct comparison, but look back at like Snow White and Seven Dwarfs, the very first, you know, Disney animated feature, which, you know, has become, you know, a corporate icon these days, but back in the day felt radical and dangerous and new and fresh. And Wolf Walker reminds me of that, of 2D animation being a playground for things that feel dangerous in the right ways like this is different this is fresh this is new um what do we and we have our own corner here a corner that nobody works in anymore we can try things and wolf walkers like tries things and it, they all work <laughs> it's this amazing movie uh brad uh, did you like wolf walkers as much as i did yeah i absolutely adored this movie uh not just because the animation is simply stunning where every frame feels like uh, a painting or an illustration from uh, a long lost children's book from from so long ago but uh the story is just you know purely magical it, the the fantasy elements are uh beautifully brought to life and i i it does so interesting things with how it tells the story too i i love the differentiation in the animation between uh, what the, the how the wolf walkers see the world and how they visualize uh, sounds and scents and things like this, and it's just it's amazing just to see it come to life in this fashion. I haven't seen any of Cartoon Saloon's previous work like The Secret of, of uh, Kels or anything like that, but it's th this was just uh, such a wonderful movie to get, get lost in, and um, it just made me it, it made me feel like a kid again. It's uh, and even like in you know the final battle is isn't anything. 
uh, revelatory as far as bringing anything new to the table, but I found myself getting caught up in like worrying about the fate of these characters and what was going to happen. And it's, um, yeah, it's, it's a magnificent animated feature. And I, I just wish that, you know, um, you know, Cartoon Saloon was able to churn out more movies more often, you know, on the same level as Pixar, because I would love to see so much more from them. Yeah, this is a, Wolf Walker and Soul are unfairly attached to the hip because they're both going to award season as like the uh, front runner and critically beloved dark horse for, you know, an Oscar this year. And I think Soul and Wolf Walkers represent the absolute apex of what modern animation can be from, from different angles. And I think so many people are, are are having to compete against each other, like they're making them into rivals. And I guess that's a natural inclination. But I think we are in a year like this, like we're, we're, we're Soul and Wolf Walkers. What a what a magnificent example of what animation is in right now. It wow 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 wow. Maybe Soul could win Best Picture and Wolf Walkers could win Best Animated. <laughs> I'm still I'm, I'm going to keep on pitching this to you, Jacob, and you're going to keep on telling me now. But Look, I would love if Wolf Walkers won an Oscar. And Oscars don't matter at the end of the day, but if it, I would say like, oh, finally some recognition for the studio, this amazing movie that in my own personal top 10, I think it edges out Soul by one spot actually. Mm-hmm. But it's hard for me to look at Soul and say, you don't deserve an Oscar because Soul is the absolute best <laughs> Pixar has been in a long time. Maybe like maybe top three for me. So who, who, the, who the heck knows? All I know is that I'll be revisiting Soul and Wolf Walker's quite a bit this year because holy crap are they good wolf walkers it's on uh, apple tv plus by the way it that, that maybe that and ted lasso are reasons for you to sign up for apple tv plus yeah and, and, and boy and boy state oh uh, yeah boy state's very very good as well but it won't make you feel good like wolf walkers and ted lasso. It'll, it'll make you feel a little good but it'll also make you mad <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Brad. I also watched a movie that couldn't be more different than uh, Wolf Walkers, even though it's also about a wolf. It has Hunter Hunter, uh, starring Devin Sawa. Uh, surprisingly good and rugged as this uh, isolated uh, backwoodsman whose family's being threatened by a wolf, and he heads out to find it, and he finds more than he bargained for. And that's all I'll say, other than to say that for the first seventy-five minutes of this ninety-minute movie, I was on board, enjoying its really menacing, low-key vibes. Then the climax happened. And my wife threw threw up in her mouth. I think she literally threw up in her mouth. And I couldn't stop laughing because she was so upset. And I was so, what happens comes, happens with such ferocity that I just could not stop laughing in like a positive way. I was, I was bowled over and like knocked on my ass by this movie because I, it really came out of nowhere swinging connected with my head. <laughs> Brad, uh, Hunter, Hunter, um, Worth price price of admission for you? Yeah, um, I this this was mentioned before, and I don't. I think be, um, was it Chris or or Ben that mentioned that if this movie had the A twenty four logo on it, it would be getting a lot more attention. This was the source of some controversy over a Jacob tweet that misattributed that that observation to me, but it was actually Chris who said that when we were talking about. Yeah, it. he's absolutely right, and and we we've talked about in our Slack and stuff too that it, it kind of has the same vibe of uh, it comes at night where it's a little bit of a slow burn, but there's definitely some genuine terror and suspense and uh, tension throughout. And man, uh, that ending is it's up there as far as just being shocking and, and gruesome and whatnot. So like if, if you find yourself giving, taking a chance on Hunter Hunter and you're like, Oh man, this isn't what it's cracked up to be. Trust me. Just, just like, just, just wait for the ending. Cause the, the whole movie I think is, is great, but that ending takes it to a whole different level. Um, and yeah, it is, uh, it's pretty, pretty vicious. And, uh, you know what? I found myself 
really being impressed by uh, Devin Sawa in this movie to the point where I was watching him and I was trying to figure out what he reminded me of because he looks so much more uh, older and, and rugged now. And I feel like that maybe we should have Devin Sawa replace Mel Gibson in the kind of roles that Mel Gibson plays, because I kind of got that vibe from him in this movie. And I feel like like maybe there's a, uh, a renaissance and like a comeback for Devin Sawa because he's been making movies steadily, but they've typically been a little bit more of the low key bargain bin thriller kind of things. Um, and so I think that this movie shows that he's, he's still got some good acting chops in him. And I think that as he gets older, uh, I I hope that he starts to do more stuff like this and things that garner more attention. Yeah, I, I agree. I think he's very good here. And I will say that if you are curious about this movie and don't want to watch it, but want to know what we're talking about, we will be discussing Hunter Hunter's ending at length in tomorrow's uh, back half of our top 50 moments because Hunter Hunter, I think, probably deserves to be on that list. Before that. We'll cross that bridge tomorrow. Okay, uh, Brad, what else have you been watching? Um, so I got a chance to uh, finally see Never, Rarely, Sometimes, Always. Uh, and this is something that HT also watched this week. We actually, HT and I doubled up on a couple movies. Um, and so this is one that has been in the uh, end of year conversation as uh, critics lists have been coming out. Um, hopefully it will be an awards consideration. It, um, it played at, at Sundance all the way back at the beginning of 2020. Uh, and uh, it's available on HBO Max right now. It is the story of a uh, 17-year-old girl who finds out that she is pregnant and uh, has to go from Pennsylvania to New York in order to get an abortion. Uh, and her, her cousin goes with her. And it's this very uh, low-key, very, very indie story, um, extremely grounded, um, very, very emotional, but without overselling it as like, it, it doesn't feel like it's trying to be this, you know, prestige drama. It's just uh, very much grounded in realism. And there is a a spooky calmness of it that really just lets you sit with the gravity of the situation. And there have been so many movies about uh, abortion, you know, because it's controversial and it's dramatic and, you know, it's uh, it's, uh, it can be a powerful story, but I don't think I've ever seen one that just felt like it really tapped into the quiet contemplation of, of having to deal with that, especially at such a young age. And then there's a, there's a pivotal scene in this movie too, that really just hits it home. And, makes it so that you like you just feel like you're right there with her and you are you know in in this situation and uh it's it's a very simple scene and it's not you know one that is full uh, full of a, a big performance but it is so effective um and it just breaks your heart and uh i just i i love this movie um so 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 much ht i think that you 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 loved it as well Oh yeah, I really, really love this movie. Um, I had uh, had expectations for Never Rarely, Sometimes Always going in. It had been on so many critics' top ten lists, but it's a movie that I felt like I had to steal myself for because it dealt with such a difficult subject, and because it seems so to be so bleak and to be generally like that kind of hard to watch drama that you expect from this kind of subject matter. But I found it surprisingly to be not it is hard to watch but not in a way that feels very punishing it just kind of lets you sit with the characters like you said Brad and it it just kind of takes you along on this journey in a way that um you are completely invested and you are completely um ingrained in these characters um 
emotions and sort of uh and uh tr- and and you know minds mindset uh Cindy Flanagan is just really really tremendous like she gives such a great performance as a lead character and um you feel like every little thing on her face that like every little emotion that flits across and it's a movie that I think is completely without pretense that feels really refreshing and um just really authentic and genuine and yeah that that sequence that you're talking about Brad that we'll be talking about on our moments podcast hit me so hard like I (laughs) I was like tears were dropped were going down my face but in a way it the film is so good at not feeling like it's trying to tuck at your heartstrings or manipulate your emotions. It just feels like you're in that situation. And uh, as everything sort of dawns, uh, it becomes even more powerful. Um, it, it's um, it's a really amazing film. And um, I haven't seen Eliza Hittman's other film, Beach Rats, which I, I know also got a lot of praise as well. But I'm really, really interested to see like the rest of her works and uh, what Cindy Flanagan has um, in store too. But yeah, this, this film is just a really, really great, um, quiet, contemplative movie. And uh, I, I adored it. Uh, so HG and I also watched Freaky, uh, the body swap horror comedy uh, that, you know, was uh, dubbed Freaky Friday the 13th back when it was in the works. Um, plenty of people have talked about how much they love this movie uh, and how fun it is. And I echo those sentiments wholeheartedly. Um, it was even more fun and better than I anticipated, you know, even based on how people were talking. It just it just works so well. It has such a um, a great script that is not only funny and you know, it uses plenty of the, the typical body swap comedy elements, but it also adds some new ones to the, the fray because of the serial killer uh, spin on it. Vince Vaughn is outstanding in it. So is Catherine Newton. Um, it has a surprising amount of heart in it, too. And it's just it, all around. It's just uh, so much more uh, than I thought it would be like it, it. It honestly is better than it has any right to be. I just felt like this was um, initially, even when the trailer came out, that it was it was going to be, you know, goofy and fun. But it's just such a well put together movie that has a lot more going on under the hood than it, it would seem like for a movie with such a, uh, a high concept. And I, I really don't think that there's a part of this movie that uh, doesn't work. And, you know, even, even the, um, the end, ending, you know, manages to, to insert a little bit of, um, you know, extra uh, suspense and, and terror in, into it in a way that you aren't entirely anticipating. Um, and, yeah, it's just, I, I was just very impressed by how, by how well, you know, a movie like this turned out. How about you, HD? Yeah, I echo at what everyone has said. I really liked Freaky. It's a lot of fun. Um, I do think that um, – what was I going to say? I, uh, <laughs> I, I do think that um, – I oh, here, this is what I was going to say. <laughs> I like that it does a lot with um, a pretty, like, simple but unique premise. Um, but I do think that I like uh, – Christopher, uh, Happy Death Day a little bit better, like the Happy Death Day movies a little better, because uh, which is um, directed by Christopher Landon, uh, who who directed Freaky. Um, Vince Vaughn though is hilarious. Uh, Catherine Newton is good. I think she doesn't have get much to do as much to do as Vince Vaughn, but um, she really like sells the role and she looks great and she's it's just like such great imagery to it. Um, so yeah, Freaky, fun time. <laughs> and speaking of Vince Vaughn. I actually rewatched over the last week Made. This is the 2001 film. This came out before September 2001. It is it was set in New York City. It's uh 
written, directed, and co-produced by John Favreau. And the reason why we watched this is Kitra, I think, uh, I forget how it came up. We were talking about movies John Favreau had directed because of Mandalorian, and she didn't realize that he directed Elf. And we had gone and rewatched that, and she had never seen Made, which I remember loving when it came out. I was a big fan of Swingers and that whole kind of indie movement that was going on. Uh, in the nineties into the early two thousands. And uh, th- I hadn't seen this movie in, you know, probably like 10, 15 years or something. I don't know a while. And uh, this is a, you know, a funny movie. If, if you've never seen made, it, it has uh, John Favreau stars alongside Vince Vaughn as a bunch of uh, guys who are kind of, uh, they're working for a local mafia boss uh, and they kind of, get this opportunity to go to New York city. They're, they're working in LA. They get this opportunity to work to, to go to um, New York city and be part of this, uh, I don't know, this money drop of some kind, uh, you know, some shady things are going on, going down. The thing I like about this is Vince Vaughn is kind of, uh, I feel like in swingers, the whole movie, you kind of like uh, uh, John Favreau's character kind of, think looks up at Vince Vaughn and how like you know quote unquote money he is and how cool he is and in the end of the movie spoilers for swingers I think John Favreau's character kind of realizes how he it really isn't and how he doesn't have everything figured out as as much as he thought he did um and in this movie it's kind of a play against that where I think John, uh, Vince Vaughn is this like incredible fuck up who just can fuck up every single thing but thinks he's the cool guy in the room and John Favreau's character is like, is completely aware of that. Um, it has some, some great appearances from Sean Puffy Combs. Uh, uh, who else? Uh, Hazy and love Peter Falk, uh, you know, Columbo as a great role in this. Um, I, I love John Favreau when he does like these smaller films. I think this had like a $5 million budget. It's like a 90 minute film. Um, I will say that, seeing this film in 2020 i was surprised at how old it feels for a movie that was made in this decade um that um or not decade this century sorry uh i was surprised that like you know there's they're smoking in restaurants and bars in this movie they're like you know they have beepers they go to pay phones um I was, I was surprised to see in like a couple shots, of the twin towers in the background, uh, even like the film grain, you know, this was filmed on film, like makes it feel older than it should be for a movie that was made in the two thousands. Um, which is weird to say, uh, it's also interesting to see like Pharaoh's obsessions, like kind of just like looking over his entire career. Like, you know, even back then, like there's a scene where he shows his, uh, uh, his girlfriend's daughter how to cook some pasta. So he's already obsessing on cooking and making like, you know, a, a good meal. There's like a whole scene that takes place in the, the beginning of the movie that is at like the CD boxing match, which uh, I didn't really think was like a through line in, in Favreau stuff. But uh, in uh, one of the episodes of or actually the first episode directed by John Favreau of Mandalorian season three or season two, rather, uh, there was like a CD boxing match. So I don't know. It's just uh, interesting to see the obsessions of John Favreau 
on display in this movie. But uh, if you've never seen Maid, uh, go see Maid. Brad, I, I feel like you are probably one of the people on this podcast that have seen this movie. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I, I um, watched Maid and Swingers, uh, you know, basically when I was like really digging into uh, different kinds of movies when I started watching more indie movies and paying attention to, you know, lower key filmmakers and whatnot. And there was, yeah, a big part of like a lot of, uh, you know, movies that basically got me to becoming, you know, more of a, a cinephile as opposed to a casual movie fan. Yeah. Have you rewatched it in recent years? I haven't actually. And the, you talking about it has made me had made me want to go watch back and watch both of them. Yeah, it, it's definitely not as good as Swingers, um, but it, it's I don't know. I. I looked in like the rating, like the the critic reviews weren't like too positive. I think it was like seventy percent of Rotten Tomatoes or something. So I I don't know. I just I don't know. I I really enjoyed the movie. I highly recommend it. You made I should yeah. I want to recommend if you like this, which Made is really good by the way. I liked it. You should also look up um, Mikey and Nikki, which is a nineteen seventy six movie uh, oh. from Elaine May, and it also has Peter Falk in it. And when you watch that, you're gonna be like, oh. John Favreau stole a lot of this from <laughs> Mikey and Nikki. And it's clearly he's not being subtle about it because like I said, they both star Peter Falk. So I'm sure like he was like, this is no homage to that, but they're very similar movies where it's about these two low level, like mob guys. And one of them is just like a fucking mess. And the other one is just always trying to like calm him down. And he's like, Oh, he's my best friend. And then he slowly begins to realize like this guy is, is a monster and I need to stop hanging around with him. So um, I, I really, if you, you know, if you're in the mood to see another movie like Made, I, I really recommend looking this up. Uh, I don't know if it's on, it's on Tubi, which is a free streaming service. So you can watch it there if you want. I didn't even know Tubi existed. I'll have to look into that. Um, another thing I watched this past week was Cobra Kai season three. You've heard me in the past on this podcast uh, spout off about how great Cobra Kai is. Now it's on Netflix. Now I feel like a whole new audience is discovering the series and season three came out on january 1st uh i will say this uh season two of of the series kind of ends in a a cliffhanger a very surprising shocking cliffhanger um that kind of sends the series in a new direction and season three the first half of season three is kind of trying to deal with the consequences of the 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 corner of the the room that they that the showrunners have kind of put these characters in and uh because of that um it's kind of, it kind of feels like that like the, the first half of the season is them digging back to the, the kind of the the normal status quo i don't want to say they ever get back to the normal status quo but digging back to kind of getting to the the way we like the show to be and because of that i know uh Fred Topel on our site compared it to the last Jedi. And uh, I don't want to say it's the last Jedi of karate kid, you know, spinoff uh, of, of this, of the series, but it, it really is an apt comparison because it is kind of uh, sending our characters in directions that uh, they don't really want to go. Maybe we don't want to see them go, but it, they're going to be better off for it. Um, and uh, because of that, I feel like the first half of the season is, uh, isn't as good as Cobra Kai season one. I would say it's on the level of Cobra Kai season two, but the second half of this season guys is amazing, especially the last two episodes. Uh, I don't want to give anything away, but uh, it, it really 
the last two episodes I think are like series best and has some twists and turns and some not even like gimmicky twists or anything, just like moments, like some good moments. We get some reunions of some characters that we haven't seen together in a way that like, you know, coming off 2020, I feel like we've lived through all these like, um, Brad, what is that series of uh, Josh Gad has been doing on YouTube? What is that called? Uh, We're reunited apart reunited apart and i feel like i've never i haven't been like very satisfied by a lot of those it feels like everybody's so distanced on their zoom cams and stuff like that and this is uh some of these people being reunited together in a place as their characters and it, it's just so so good so good and uh where this leaves off oh and also this season um in last season, season two, they introduced, um, or they reintroduced, um, uh, oh my God, what's his name? Martin Cove. Uh, I'm blanking on the character's name. John Crease. John Crease, yes. John Crease. They reintroduced John Crease last season. And this season, uh, they gave us some flashbacks. They, they basically th- sprinkled throughout the season this John Crease backstory that I never, like the John Crease origin story. Like John Kreese begins, basically. It's it's a story that I never thought I needed or wanted, but ends up being pretty a lot of fun. Did they so, digitally de-age him, Peter? I have not watched the season. No, uh, I didn't know this, but like after watching the series, I learned that it was actually they they used another actor, but I learned after watching it that they used his son. So oh, cool. yeah. So uh yeah. Um anyways, uh where this show where the season leaves things off for season four is incredible. I like it, it really like that last episode had like almost like the, the last episode. Of, I want to compare it to the last episode of Mandalorian season two. Like it literally had both Kitra and I like jumping up and down on our, uh, on our bed. We were watching on our bed and uh, like tears coming out of her. Eye. Like it, it, it's just so good. So I don't know. I, I know a lot of people on this podcast have not given this a, a chance yet, but Cobra Kai, like it's stupid, but fun, but so enjoyable. Like it, it's so much better than it ever has the right to be. Like, I don't know. I, I, I'm not sure. It, like, it's not like <laughs> the best written stuff, but it's just like so, so just so very enjoyable. Anyways, that's on Netflix right now. And I think you can watch all three seasons. I'm not sure if Karate Kid is on Netflix. Um, but I would say if you're going to watch Cobra Kai season three, you're going to want to have seen the Karate Kid part two. Uh, I think the first two seasons of Karate Kid or of Cobra Kai require just a viewing of the first film, but the, the, the third season requires part two and maybe future seasons might require part three. So yeah. Anyways, uh, I also, what else have I been watching? Um, I've been you know, one of the things uh, Kitra and I have been kind of craving that the that the pandemic kind of has taken away from us is, um, you know, the shows that we watch where it's like a competition reality shows like uh, The Amazing Race or Survivor. And a lot of these shows shut down way before the United States shut down um, earlier last year because, you know, they were international productions. And so, you know. I think there's an amazing race airing right now or just aired that was like filmed like two years ago or something insane, but, um, survivor, there's not gonna be a new survivor for a while. And one of my friends, uh, Chris Kidder, 
uh, I, I texted him the other day and like he was, I was like, what are you doing? And he was like, I'm watching Australian Survivor. And I was like, I didn't even know Australian Survivor existed. Um, apparently Australian Survivor, uh, I think launched, you know, many, a few decades ago, uh, they had a couple season and then it, then it went off the air, but uh, they had season three. Uh, it went away for a couple decades, and then season three um, just started airing. I think in two thousand seventeen. I'm if I, I think I'm correct. Um, so that's what I started off with. Uh, one of the one of the big problems with Survivor, I think, and even what, uh, me trying to recommend it on this podcast is I feel like you can't, it's a hard thing to recommend for newcomers to get into because it's kind of like recommending here, watch this, you know, the 200th episode of this one season of football, because I don't want to say it's complicated. It's not complicated. It's something that anybody could easily get into. It's, you know, it's a network TV, but it, it's really a, competition show that is kind of uh it's based off like all this canon that has come before and how the game has changed and how to play the game and all that kind of it's hard to like recommend a united states survivor for people to get into because the first like i want to say 15 seasons are like filmed in like standard definition and are very hard to watch they're they're all available on cbs all access and then once you get into the the high definition seasons where it actually looks modern and and is easy to watch it's um kind of like there's reoccurring character you know there's contestants that are coming back there's like there's literally like there's vocabulary that they use on the show that like it's never explained you know, it, it's from previous seasons and stuff like that. So it's it's kind of hard to recommend. But I think, like, if I was ever going to recommend someone watch Survivor today, I would say to start off with season three of Australian Survivor because this is kind of a new beginning. It's set in modern times where it has, um, you know, a very good production. Uh, it's set in Samoa. So it's a different uh, island location than the recent American seasons of Survivor. And it's it's it, it scratches that survivor itch, but it's it's interesting how it's the same but different. First of all, I think that this this show in America, Survivor the the big prize at the end is one million dollars. In Australia, they don't have that much money, so it's half a million dollars. The interesting thing here is the American show. I think the the contestants last like they're on the island for 30 something days in the Australian season. They're on the island for like 55 days. So they're, they're there for twice as long for almost twice as many episodes uh, and, you know, working to earn half as much money, which is kind of interesting. But uh, I like seeing how things are different here. Like in American survivor, when they get to the island, uh, they, they're kind of like presented with, um, they have to go foraging to cre- create like their like tent and stuff like that. But like, they're not allowed to like cut down trees and stuff. So like the survivor um, production just like leaves a bunch of like these bamboo, you know, and all the stuff around for them to actually have to go look for and bring back. And this one, it actually feels more Robinson Crusoe where they're actually like cutting down trees and, and stuff like that. Uh, it's, 
I feel like it's nicer. The people on this are a little bit nicer and more polite. Um, I think because of that, I would recommend this to Jacob. I think he might enjoy this more than American Survivor. Um, it, it's sometimes completely different in the challenges and the games that they play. Like there was this one where each team uh, ha- had a tunnel and they had like 10 minutes to install these like these big like boards and sticks with sticks and they could they had rope to tie it in this tunnel and then after the 10 minutes to like basically obstruct the tunnel then after 10 minutes the they had to switch tunnels and the other team had to make their way through the the blockage that they that they had made and bring actually a, a chicken coop with them, which was the prize for the challenge. Anyways, I'm probably going way too long on Australian survivor and people probably don't care, but I know I, in the past when I've talked about it, people have all asked me like, you know, what is a good season to kind of like an introductory season of survivor. And I think this is like, this is now my go-to answer. And, um, I don't know. There's just some very interesting twists and turns and they do some stuff in, in this version of survivor that's, I feel like, well, no, I know has never been done in the American survivor and, uh, might even be like gimmicky for TV, but it's, it's so enjoyable to watch. So that is Australian survivor. And you can watch that on YouTube, the whole season three. I'm not sure if any of the other seasons are on there, but the entire season three is like up there, I think illegally to be watched. So there you go. Uh, Jacob, what have you been watching? Uh, I'll be brief on my stuff. Uh, I watched Baccarat, the Brazilian uh, sci-fi, satire, horror, action, drama that is unclassifiable and also really, really great. Uh, Near future, uh, dystopia, uh, anti-fascism, anti-imperialism, just this brilliant political blend of uh, B-movie grunge and high-minded political commentary. Uh, It's available on all the regular VOD services for a couple bucks at this point. I think it's all streaming on the Criterion channel. It's really terrific. And I don't want to say more than that because the way it reveals its story is the real treat. And stick with it. It's maybe a little bit of a slow start, but it's taking its time for a reason. And the way it tells the story and reveals its, its details is quite frankly brilliant. Uh, back around. It's great. Uh, also watch Tesla. Uh, Chris has spoken with the movie at length, so I won't hear other than to say that it's thorough rejection of all biopic tropes is really refreshing and it does so on such a low budget it makes you feel good about the biopic again because there's no point in trying to do the whole life story approach that's been endlessly mocked at this point whereas tesla uh really tries to get underneath the story to understand why does some why do we care about this person and present that in a way that feels relevant and modern and very very funny with a lot of awesome fantasy sequences that uh, aren't literal and really inform how we approach these kind of stories more so than like a literal take would have been. So that's Tesla streaming on Hulu. Uh, also, real quick, new season of BattleBot started. My favorite guilty pleasure show. It's just a bunch of nerds building robots and fighting robots. And it's so joyful to watch because no one gets rich building robots and fighting robots. No one gets famous building robots and fighting robots. These people are building robots to fight on television because they want to build robots. And it's... <laughs> It's just such a simple, pure thing. And Discovery Plus has a new spinoff show. It's exclusive to them called uh, uh, BattleBots Bounty Hunters. That is just a, uh, it was filmed right after the main season was was wrapped. And it's just more BattleBots in a different format. A lot of the uh, lesser tier robots, like a lot of the main, you know, 
A-tier robots, your actual contenders for the championship, aren't here. So you get to see a lot of the uh, really interesting, uh, you know, middle-rung teams battle it out uh, for a cash prize. Uh, I love BattleBots, guys. It's just my thing. I I love it the same way Peter loves Survivor. I could go on forever, but I won't. Um, Watch BattleBots if you like the idea of robots fighting, because it's pretty rad. I'm disappointed that BattleBots Bounty Hunters isn't isn't people with BattleBots tracking down criminals. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, the basic gist, I'll be real fast, is they take one famous or top-tier robot and then have eight robots who are not as famous or top-tier having brackets to battle it out to who will face that major robot for a cash prize uh, oh. and becoming the bounty hunter, but, which is the format of it. It's, it's really fun, and it's been very surprising, and there have been some really unlikely human stories and some really unlikely uh, victors, and it, yeah, I, I've... BattleBots, it, it's such a pure thing. It's just... You don't go on battle bots unless you love robots, man. And then that 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 infectious joy is in every moment of this damn show. I I, I love battle bots, and I'm done. No more battle bots for me today. Okay. Do you, how often do the underdogs actually defeat the like the famous robot? I don't want to spoil things because, uh, especially for the battle bots bounty hunters, there are some big upsets though across the brackets in in, in a spinoff show. Uh, I will say that. There is one robot this year who's who competes in both Bounty Hunters and the main uh, series uh, called Mad Catter. And its builder is the, the lead of the, of the Mad Catter team. He's a community college teacher who teaches robotics at a California community college uh, east of Los Angeles. And his entire team are his students. And in past years, they come up and had a pretty okay robot that won and lost in mostly like lower tier battles. But this year, he's in, he came back swinging. He's like destroying big robots and like wrecking things. And even though he's this apparently mild-mannered community college professor... His on-camera persona is like he literally plays a WWE villain, like clearly like having fun doing it. And it's so much fun because he's clearly having a great time. He's clearly a really smart guy who's built this robot with his students, and he's a teacher and an educator who's passionate. But when the cameras are on him, he literally goes full WWE, and like he's clearly like just relishing it. Whereas other people, like you know, are more low key and are just sort of like you know, just quiet little nerds who are who are you know just. Very soft spoken. They're happy to be here. Whereas he's like going for it. He, he's uh, Mad Catter is my current MVP uh, and the current guy upsetting all the brackets across all of BattleBots right now. Jacob, I think we made a deal in the past of like you'd watch Survivor if I watched something, and I don't even remember what that something was at this point. I bet a listener but, does. <laughs> can, can we change the deal to ba- BattleBots Bounty Hunters versus Australian Survivor? That's uh, yes, but I will also say that. Uh, to fully appreciate Bounty Hunters, I'd recommend going back to Season 3 of BattleBots so you can see the transformation of the robots. But you don't have to do that. That's actually me just... You can jump at any time and still have fun. But yes, you know what? I will try Australian Survivor, Peter. You try BattleBots, either Core Series or Bounty Hunters. How how old is Season 3 of BattleBots? That sounds like it's uh, a long time ago. It's currently... Well... God, I'm making the history of BattleBots. The original run in the 90s was Comedy Central or in the 90s, early 2000s. That's not streaming anywhere as far as I know. The current iteration, the first two seasons were on ABC, and they're not available for anywhere legally. You can find them illegally if you want to track them down. The current iteration, seasons three through five, uh, which is the current season five, are all streaming on Discovery Plus or available for purchase on Amazon. I'm watching them. I bought the episodes through Amazon already. I rebought the season. Uh, but if you have a Discovery <laughs> Plus, you can start with season three and enjoy it just fine. And you can, if you ever need to YouTube um, up some old fights to figure out why people fear Tombstone, for example, it's a terrifying robot. Um, you can always find that on YouTube, but um, I think part of the fun is it's like watching sports teams. Robots get better. Robots get worse. Uh, the human stories next to the robots do evolve, and the show gets better over, over years about uh, 
finding time to find those human stories. It doesn't always find them early on. Early on, it very much is robots fighting. Isn't this cool? But especially in season four, they really started getting cameras behind the scenes and following the teams as they would fix the robot between fights. And why do they like robots? <laughs> and they that's where they started. Uh, the show went from being uh, good to great, uh, I think, in season four. But I said, I stopped talking about BattleBots. I'm still talking about BattleBots. Peter, I'm stopping right now. Seriously. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, Jacob. Okay, Brad, no, what have you been watching? Um, I watched Unpregnant on HBO Max, um, which is fantastic. Uh, directed by Rachel Lee Goldenberg. Um, it is a movie that has a, a premise that is similar to Never Really, Sometimes Always, since it also involves a teen girl uh, going on a trip to get an abortion. But this is the uh, much more lighthearted comedic take on it, uh, where um, a, a young girl, uh, Haley Lee Richardson, has to uh, in, basically trust an estranged friend who uh, used to be friends when they were younger, but fell apart when they uh, went into high school and they embark on this trip so that she can uh, travel out of state to get an abortion since she can't do it in uh, her own state without parental consent. And uh, it shares a lot of, um, you know, elements with never really sometimes always, but it's obviously uh, funnier, but it still packs just as much heart and the, the chemistry between uh, the two stars, it's uh, Haley Lee Richardson and Barbie Ferreira. Barbie Ferreira especially is, man, I, I want to see her do so much more. Um, this is like a, it's it's a performance that reminded me of like uh, when Jonah Hill uh, kind of broke out in Superbad. Um, and it's a, it's a similar kind of performance, not, not quite as obnoxious, but she's definitely a very uh, big personality. And I just, I loved her character in this. Um, and it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's one of those kind of, um, it's a, it's a wacky road trip movie, but without being too crazy, it has just the right amount of, uh, absurdity to be, uh, funny, but it also treats the subject matter seriously. Um, and it's just, I, I love these characters so much. And, uh, you know, I, I wish that this was a story that allowed you to spend more time with them that if there was, you know, time for a series or something like that. But, uh, yeah, if you guys haven't watched Unpregnant, I know Ben uh, has been championing this film for a while and, uh, it was in his top 10. And uh, it just barely didn't make mine. This this and Never Really Sometimes Always were both very close together. And like I feel like they're kind of spiritual uh, companions. And yeah, they're um, so you should watch both of them. And Unpregnant, uh, Unpregnant is probably a little bit more accessible just because it's funnier. And that's on HBO Max. So you should definitely watch it. And then uh, what else did I watch? I watched uh, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Um, so much praise has already been given to Chadwick Boseman. And, and all I can do is just echo those sentiments um, very much because he is astounding in this movie. Um, and it's not just, you know, praise because you're thinking about, wow, this actor is gone. If anything, you watch this performance and you're more upset, uh, that Chadwick Boseman is no longer with us because this performance is just, uh, it, you know, um, not that awards, you know, matter in the grand scheme of things, but it is Oscar worthy. Um, he has, uh, there, there are three, uh, scenes that are still on our list in consideration for our best movie moments, um, two of them are, are from Chadwick Boseman and it's simply just because of how incredible he is, uh, as his character in this movie. Uh, but even, even beyond that, there's a great movie around him. I, I was reminded of, um, do the right thing in many ways. And even though this is, uh, this, so this movie is based on a 1982 play by August Wilson. And I, part of me wonders if do the right thing borrowed some elements from it because there's, uh, you know, um, a very pivotal scene involving uh, the scuffing of a, of a shoe. and that. But then I feel like this movie borrowed elements from Do the Right Thing because the sweltering heat 
uh, just creates such, you know, uh, a tense environment among these, these characters in this movie. And it, it has a vibe very much so that feels inherently tied to uh, do the right thing. And they share a lot of similarities as far as their thematic element, elements and how they approach, um, you know, race and, and that kind of thing. And if, if anything, it's, uh, you know, it, it's more powerful because it just shows that, like, the, the times, you know, from when Ma Rainey's Black Bottom takes place, uh, which is decades ago, to do the right thing, you know, which took place, you know, in uh, the early 90s era um, or late late 80s, right around there, that, you know, there's still so much frustration there um, among, you know, uh, the, the Black people and Black culture. And so many things are ingrained that just have, have been so frustrating uh, for them as a whole. And you see it come out in this movie and do the right thing. So uh that's on netflix and it's uh it's fantastic and uh i watched sound of metal uh, i've been putting this off for a while not for, for no particular reason uh, and i kept hearing great things about it and uh it, it definitely lived up to the hype especially uh riz ahmed you know an, another one of those performances that's definitely award worthy and i feel like it dives into uh the you know the struggle that people have uh with deafness in a way though that doesn't treat it like it's uh, a full-on disability it's you you spend time with a uh, a deaf community in this movie as this heavy metal drummer played by Riz Ahmed has suddenly lost most of his hearing and it's him trying to uh basically live you know with with deafness and figure things out and learn sign language uh and whatnot but obviously you know it's a it's a journey that he takes that has you know many missteps and frustrations and uh the way it approaches sound both uh, thematically and, you know, at, literally, as far as how sound is presented in this movie, just ingrains you in his story even more. And it it makes his struggle um, not not literally tangible, but just makes it feel more tangible because you, the way that you hear how he perceives the world, you can't help but think, you know, what it would be like if, if that's exactly how you were left to hear everything that was happening uh, around you and it's um it's definitely a uh a movie that is is, is affecting in a lot of ways um and it's yeah I, it easily made uh my my top 10 um and there's a part of me that was worried some of the movies i saw whether it was recency bias or not but like just the more i thought about you know movie like sound of metal or ma rainey's black bottom um they it just resonated so much that these, these kind of movies just immediately hit you and you you feel you know something in, inside you that just tells you like wow this is something that is you know moving and significant and it, it, it's just this is definitely one of those movies um i also watched uh the half of it which is a netflix uh teen romantic comedy uh it's directed by by alice Wu, and it's uh takes the cyrano de bergerac um kind of angle where this uh, young, quirky, nerdy kind of girl who gets paid to write uh, kids' essays in high school um, is hired by this kind of uh, charmingly oafish, uh, somewhat dim dim-witted um, jock to write love letters to the you know the pretty girl in school that he has a crush on, um, but he's not quite he doesn't have quite of a full or intellectual personality to be Im- impressive to her on his own, and so. Uh, what he doesn't know, though, is that um, this girl uh, actually also has uh, a crush on the, on the same girl. And so 
she starts, you know, basically living out her, like what she would like her romance to be with her at the same time. And of course, love triangle and Susan one. And it's a very charming movie. The performances, uh, especially by uh, Leah Lewis as the lead uh, in this movie are fantastic. And Alice Wu shows great uh, promise as, as a filmmaker, but I found myself much in the same way that I did with Sylvie's love, really disappointed in the ending of this movie. So I, I won't spoil what happens, but it just feels like it all suddenly happens and finishes simply because the movie has to end and not in any way that fits with um, the story or wraps things up neatly. I appreciate what it does with the characters in the end, but the way it comes about feels extremely messy and choppy, almost to the point where it feels like there was maybe a good 15, 20 minutes that was cut out of this movie. And there were some dangling things that didn't quite make sense and stuff that was made to be more important or significant that doesn't land as firmly because stuff is missing. So, um, but I think that like, like with Sylvie's love, there's so much to love in the rest of this movie. I still think it's, it's worth watching. And I definitely look forward to uh, what Alice Wu can do as a, a filmmaker, because this is a very uh, confident and, and charming uh, movie that she put together. Uh, and then finally I watched bad education, which is on HBO max. Uh, and it is a, like a, a career best performance for Hugh Jackman. I think um, he plays this uh, superintendent of a New York school district. And this is based on a true story where it's discovered that his uh, staff and uh, friends and people are all involved um, in this multi-million dollar embezzling thing. Um, and there are, t- it's, it's interesting because there are times where this feels like kind of like a, a low key mob movie, how some scenes play out. But it's not a movie where these are these were people who were necessarily actively trying to get rich or were scheming just to get rich. It was just it's something that just got out of hand. And there's uh, this amazing scene where you it, that really hits at home, and you see that really the the point of this movie is this depiction of a school system uh, and, and a school system that is this is something that happens you know all over the country that is so broken where so much pressure is put on these people to, uh, you know, deliver high rankings as far as, you know, their the, the education system and uh, school admissions to colleges and just to please parents and give them everything they want to, that at some point they, you, you just, you start doing things, even if you, they, they are, uh, you know, uh, immoral and unethical because you're just trying to do right by the people that you're supposed to. And clearly what happens in bad education is something that just, got out of hand and you realize that it's because these people, you know, they do so much that, and they're so underappreciated. Um, and yeah, it's just, I, I, this movie, um, you know, it, it kind of hits in the same way that a movie like uh, spotlight or all the president's men does, but on a, a much more, you know, uh, local scale. it has a, a journalistic angle to it too, because there, it, uh, there's a, a high school student that is kind of helps unearth a little bit of what's happening um and yeah just just watching the story unfold it's crazy that this this story was even true and that it actually you know unfolded in this way but uh watching the dramatization of it is uh very compelling uh and has a lot of great performances in it so you should watch that on hbo max okay i know ht has also been playing catch up for the year and has a lot to talk about (laughs) ht what have you been watching I have a lot, a lot to talk about. So I'm going to go on a lightning round or as the best as I can achieve a lightning round for my movies. Uh, First up, 
promising young woman. A pitch black rape revenge movie wrapped up in a cotton candy aesthetic that slowly unveils itself to be uh, a really potent portrait of grief. I kind of wish that it went for the uh, difficult ending, but it, regardless, it made me cry. The Painter and the Thief, a naughty and complex documentary that deals with the, uh, or that grapples with the personal demons and the addictions that we share. Sylvie's Love, a, a really beautifully shot and beautifully felt uh, melodrama that shoots for Douglas Sirk but ends up being falling a little closer to Nicholas Sparks. Tessa Thompson is magical. Uh, the Vast of Night, real technically impressive movie. Um, and I was really impressed with all the, the long shots it does and what it does on such a low budget. Um, uh, really impressive just kind of movie that uh, is more restrained and subdued than the kind of sci-fi film that you would expect. Uh, Vast of Night, good. Uh, Shirley, I really, really love this movie. Uh, gothic. Uh, a gothic horror movie about women on the verge and a movie about the monstrous task of writing and um, how much of a sort of perverse and weird and wonderful thing it is. Uh, Elizabeth Moss is just fantastic, always the best at playing women on the edge. And I was uh, really just amazed by how much I love this movie. Also might be a, a case of recency bias, but it just hits all the marks of the, the things I love. Gothic horror, women on the verge, etc. And uh, it hits into that, um, the really, I feel like it's a very much of a writer's movie too, in a way that uh, it does take a lot of um, license for Shirley Jackson's life. I have to confess, I'm not really familiar with Shirley Jackson's works except for like on a broad strokes level, but I really liked how it delved into the gothic horror and basically turned the task of writing into the monster. And I love that. Uh, I watched the Borat movies for the first time. I never watched the first Borat when it came out because when I, it came out, every snot nosed middle schooler who I knew was quoting it incessantly and I swore to never watch it ever. <laughs> but I decided to give it a chance because I needed to watch Borat's subsequent movie film. And I heard that it's actually a much more timely and prescient mo uh, movie about America as a culture than um, I had, you know, dismissed it as before. And it's really funny to see how much talking about the first war out how much uh of its humor has informed the humor of people i uh, of people today uh and it really was went for the shocks in a way that i had to i was just impressed by and how it kind of uh tapped into a lot of things that were felt really prescient uh Borat's subsequent movie film great sequel uh also equally shocking but feels even more politically uh potent and i appreciated that uh, yeah, lots of sequences were really crazy, and um, I'm happy I was actually able to be in the know about what made the headlines. And the last movie I watched was Cadillionaire, the new movie from Randa July. Um, kind of a really oddity of a movie. Uh, I really I enjoyed it a lot, but um, kind of lost me halfway through. Uh, I did. I don't. I can't say I, I enjoyed like the the ending of it, but it's it's a it's so peculiar and so singular that it's a movie that only Miranda July could make. And um, that's Kajillionaire, which is on VOD. So I made it. That's all my movies I did for, <laughs> I watched over the past like weekend. I feel like you went through a list of movies that is so long in less time than I took to talk about Australian Survivor. <laughs> do, 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 do you have anything else to say about these movies? I feel, I feel bad that like you just like, did such a and congrats you did such a good job with that but thank you <laughs> uh th does borat hold up like it, today like the original borat yeah i think it really does um 
yeah, again, I was, it's just, it's a movie that the comedy seems so ahead of its time, but also would come to define the comedy for the next like 10 years afterwards in a way that I feel was really recognizable to me, but also I really appreciate as a, someone who saw like internet humor become a huge defining thing. And I was like, wow, they really were ahead of uh, their time for it. Um, And yeah, it's, it's all like shock and crap, shocking and crass, but in a way that felt very prescient and um yeah. i think even more so than borat subsequent movie film was Borat's sub- subsequent movie film feels very much about like now um but borat felt very forward-looking so yeah i'm wondering like five ten years if this borat sequel will feel less relevant mm-hmm. probably will you're probably right um i need to see cajillionaire Conj- like i i like miranda julia but i feel like me, you, and everyone we know is like her best movie, and it's been kind of diminishing returns since then. Yeah, I really like Me, You, and Everyone We Know, um, the best of the movies I've seen of her so far. Cajillionaire is is so interesting, and it's so it, the visuals are really striking, and Evan Rachel Wood is really great in it. Um, I, I guess I can go into the details of it since I'm I'm finished with my piece, but Cajillionaire follows sure. a group of. Um, uh, a family of con people who uh, spend their time uh, trying to get the best deal or value out of things, often uh, grifting or uh, just stealing, uh, outright stealing. And Evan Rachel Wood plays the daughter of two grifters who has this is the only life she's ever known, and everything about her that she's that she knows with her family is about a give and take and not actual affection. And uh, her trying to come to terms with like come to terms with that and realize that she does indeed want love and affection is a really great arc um it just feels it's a movie that feels like it it holds your arm's length in a way that um kind of yeah kind of loses you halfway through but it's it's a really fascinating movie i think i think you might enjoy it peter ben what have you been watching uh, I watched The Mystery of D.B. Cooper, which is streaming on HBO Max right now. It is a documentary about D.B. Cooper, who I believe in 1971 boarded a plane from Portland to Seattle and held the plane hostage and demanded $200,000 and four parachutes and jumped out of the plane never to be seen or heard from again. And I think the the movie opens saying that it's like the only uh, unsolved case of air piracy in American history, which is like a pretty cool statistic. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm a little torn on this movie because I love the story. And uh, D.B. Cooper is like a, he's become, you know, sort of a folk hero. And there's a lot that has been written about him and, and said about him. And this movie um, essentially tracks like four, I think four different people, maybe five different people who are convinced that they have figured out the identity of D.B. Cooper, who I believe that was a, a, uh, an alias that was used. And one woman says, oh, it was my husband. He told me on his deathbed that, you know, I'm I'm this guy and somebody else. You know, th- there, there are several different cases. And it sort of reminded me a little bit of um, uh, Room 237 in that way, where it, the filmmakers relatively dispassionately just present all of these different theories and kind of like leave you to draw your own conclusions about what you believe. And, and if you believe any of these people actually was uh, the real DB Cooper and, and what might've happened to him and all that stuff. Um, I kind of feel like the film tips its hand a little bit towards the one that it thinks 
that uh, like the, the, the selection that they would choose, the filmmakers would choose, but it doesn't, it's never overt and it could just be me reading into it too much. Um, but speaking of reading, after we were done with it, my wife was, I, I think I can speak for her and say that she felt like slightly dissatisfied with the the depth uh, that this documentary went into the story. So she did a little bit of Googling and we were just sitting on the couch after watching it. And she was just sort of regaling me with all these these facts that she discovered about the case just through like a, a quick Google search that would have been really interesting to include in this movie or uh, would have helped provide some context or maybe um, uh, discredited certain stories or helped build the case for certain people. Um, and it, it just seemed like, you know, if we could find this information really easily, these, the director, uh, John, John Dower, who directed this movie, certainly had access to the same information and, and, you know, way more having immersed himself in the world of all of this. Um, so it just felt like an odd choice to sort of leave out a lot of stuff. But, um, Chris, I think you said that you saw the mystery of DB Cooper. What do you, what did you think about it? I don't remember, um, if you talked about it on the podcast before. Uh, I, I liked it overall. I did think it kind of, I mean, I guess it has to end abruptly because there's no real answer, but mm-hmm. I feel like it kind of ended abruptly. And I feel like there's like this montage at the end. Where they're showing like a lot of people and some of them are people who are like not in the movie. And it makes me wonder if there's like a longer cut. I don't know, but mm. I, I liked it overall. Yeah, I, I would say it's worth watching, but it's not like the deepest dive into the story. I think if anything, it will just inspire you to maybe do your own research. But I, I found it to be a mostly entertaining watch, um, especially if you don't know any of the details about the case. Uh, I think it does a really good job, like, um, yeah, sort of encapsulating like the actual facts of of what happened. And there, are, it actually interviews people who were like the flight attendant who was on the plane with him. And, and that was I, I, hearing the firsthand stories was, I think the, the movies, uh, some of the movies best stuff. So uh, that was called the mystery of DB Cooper. And then I also watched Mad Max beyond Thunderdome for the first time. This is streaming on HBO max as well. Uh, I'd never seen this one. I'd saw the first two Mad Max movies. And then um, I saw Fury road, obviously, but uh, I, I just skipped the third one because I think in my mind, it was sort of, labeled um as like the godfather three of of the mad max franchise and i was just kind of like oh i guess this one's like universally not as well respected and maybe i can just skip it and uh i actually covered it for on an episode of the not just new movies podcast my podcast which uh, has been doing this mini series of the third entries into certain franchises and uh, we recorded an episode about this movie this morning, and that episode will be up tomorrow. So if anybody wants to listen to me go sort of in-depth on that, you can you can listen to and subscribe and check that out if you want to. Uh, but just briefly, I, I kind of like this movie a lot. I, I was surprised with how much I liked it, considering what I thought uh, its reputation was going in. Um, There's a lot of uh, similarities to Steven Spielberg's Hook, which, <laughs> which I found to be strange. I mean, this movie came out in 1985, and Hook came out in 91, so... I just wonder how much Spielberg was influenced by this at all or, or the writers um, just because like aesthetically there's a lot there. Um, uh, this movie involves Mad Max sort of coming across this like a uh, tribe of young people and there this a very, very lost boys vibe there. So uh, yeah, I, I, I was surprised at how much I enjoyed this movie. I mean, it's no Fury Road in terms of the action, um, but there is a really uh, entertaining uh, sort of all out chase across the desert that happens in like the last third of the movie that uh, 
sort of lays the groundwork for uh, the work to come in Fury Road. So uh, Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, pretty good. <laughs> okay, let's move into what we've been eating. Something I was going to talk about last week, but I, we pushed to this week because the show last week just went too long. Is uh, I as, a, as you know, I went to Oahu, Hawaii, and I did film a bunch of videos that are on the Ordinary Adventures, uh, the YouTube channel. And one of those videos I wanted to plug is our food tour of the North Shore. We went to the North Shore, which is like this beautiful, like it, it seems like less. I mean, it is touristy, but it seems like le- like people are actually living there and it's a uh, uh, less touristy than like Waikiki Beach or something like that. Um, and w- we basically filmed our whole day, which was honestly the best day of food that Kitra and I have ever had together um it uh started off with konos which is this place they they sell this thing called bombers which are basically like these breakfast burritos but in uh, inside the breakfast burrito they have like this like slow roasted kalua pork it's, i think it's been slow roasted for like 12 hours or something insane and uh just amazing uh we vis- visited the beach uh from the first season of lost um we went to giovanni's shrimp truck which you've probably seen on a lot of like food network shows like whenever they go to hawaii they feature this place it's like this food stand that sells like this amazing shrimp and kitra says it's like the best shrimp she's ever ever had and we also went up north to halavai i think is how you pronounce it uh it's a small town they have like this bridge it's called the rainbow bridge which is nothing like i've seen on thor i feel ripped off and uh they they they, i I got a uh acai bowl at halibai bowls which was like the best like fruit bowl i've ever had in my life uh and we also went to uh the turtle beach there's like this whole beach on the north shore where the turtles come to like rest and they like eat seaweed and it was one of the Kitra's most anticipated things of her entire Hawaii trip and we we went there and we trekked out through the through the sand to go to this turtle beach and Kitra was in like in her um flip-flops and we we got close I want to say we were like a couple hundred feet away from where it was and we were standing there and Kitra's like I don't see any turtles let's turn back like my feet hurt I was like we should go like we should just keep on going. Let's just see. Like, maybe we could see them. Maybe they're in the water or something. And she was just, like, feeling like, I don't know. It was trekking through sand is, like, no no joke sometimes in, in Hawaii. Like, it's like, I don't know how people run on the beach. Well, I guess they probably run when it's, like, more packed sand. But um, the funny thing about this story is when we got back and Kitra was editing this video, uh, she used the power of the, you know, the digital zoom in our 4k image to zoom in and saw that there were actually turtles on the beach and that we actually missed out on the turtles that she wanted to see like the huge uh, sea turtles. So, um, and we also went to Matsumoto shave ice, which I'm not sure about you guys, but like my whole life, I just thought shaved ice was like snow cones. Like, you know, I grew up like, you know, going to like, like ice cream, like uh, trucks and stuff and getting snow cones. And it's like this, like little ice pebble stuff that like usually isn't good. Like they, they pour like the, the flavoring on top of it. And then once you get through the flavoring, it's just like ice and it's like unsatisfying. I didn't know that like real shaved ice or shave ice. It's not shaved ice. I got yelled at a billion times for saying shaved ice. It's called shave ice with no D is like incredible. The like the the kind of we got at Matsumoto, which they they are a staple there in Oahu 
I, I think they've been there for a long time. It's a family owned business. Uh, we had it with like ice cream underneath it and some condensed milk on top and like a rainbow of flavors. And it's like this finely, like it really feels like you're eating snow and there's like the, the flavors in every bite that you've had. Uh, ben, I, I, I hate to put you on the spot here, but I know that you've been to Hawaii. I'm sure you've done some of these tours of like, you went to the lost beach and stuff. Did you have shave ice? Uh, I did. I went to that very place. And I think I remember there's a picture of Tom Hanks on the wall. Yeah. <laughs> there's like some celebrities and stuff in there. Uh, yeah, it was very good. And I, I, you know, growing up in Florida, uh, had the same exact experience as you did in terms of snow cones and thinking that was shave ice and all that. And just like having my mind and, and, uh, palate expanded when I went to, uh, Matsumoto for the first time. Yeah. Now I'm wondering. Oh, I want to chime in. Um, I haven't had this particular shave shave ice, but um, there's a Korean dessert called bingsu, which is very similar. It's like uh, very flavorful, lots of condiments added on, and it's a more fine sort of ice that is – I'm guessing that this shave ice is is inspired or – takes inspiration from Japanese desserts or something. And so that's why like Korean desserts. Oh, it definitely does because it was a Japanese immigrants that uh, came to Hawaii. And I think they actually like got the idea from Japan, like something they had in Japan. I think I read that. Yeah. So you were, you were correct. Yeah. So um, if you want to try to find something that's similar to that dessert uh, to shave ice in America, you can probably find something like uh, at a Korean dessert place. Then they have bingsu there. Yeah. Now I'm curious. I'm going to have to go on a search of like in Southern California to see if there's like anything that's nearly as good because like, I think I like it more than like, you know, ice cream or I don't know. It, it was just so good. We, we went to a bunch of places on our trip. Well, later in our trip, we went to like uh, this place called Hopa, which is over more towards like Honolulu and they use like natural flavors and stuff. It was equally as good. Anyways, I, I know I've gone super long on talking about uh, eating on my trip of Hawaii, but I'm going to link in the show notes the video from that day, that whole day we went to the Lost Beach and all that stuff, the missing the turtles. Uh, you got to see this food, guys. It, it's just like so incredible. Go watch it. Uh, Brad, what have you been eating? Um, I tried uh, this new iteration of Rice Krispies treats. Um, they've been branded as home style Rice Krispies treats. Uh, they came out in a, a regular version and a chocolate version. And basically what makes them home style is that the recipe for the the marshmallow buttery gooiness that holds them together is a little bit, um, I guess, uh, more prominent. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily say thicker, but there's just more of it. And then there are also uh, chunks of chunks of marsh, little marshmallows that are actually uh, in the mixture as well. And so the uh, the regular ones are obviously the, the best. I still like the chocolate ones, but they're not quite as flavorful um, as far as the you know the, the marshmallow gooey formula as the regular Rice Krispie treats. But I um, they are superior um, to the the regular Rice Krispie treats. So um, I think you should be able to find those in any grocery store. They're um, both iterations are very good. And then uh, earlier this year, Buffalo Wild Wings introduced uh, four new sauces, and uh, I. I tried two of them um my girlfriend and i tried the uh lemon pepper sauce and the new pizza sauce uh the lemon pepper sauce isn't one of their uh spicy iterations at all it's one of their mild ones it's, um it's pretty basic uh rotisserie chicken kind of sauce recipe that's just uh, has a little, little bit of uh lemon and pepper and it's it's buttery um but it's uh it's pretty flavorful the pizza sauce one was 
a little disappointing, not because it tasted bad, but because it's primarily their um, Parmesan garlic uh, sauce, but they ha- they dust it with uh, tomato powder and uh, basil. And I don't know if they just didn't put enough of that mixture onto the garlic Parmesan wings themselves, but it still tasted mostly like just a garlic Parmesan wing with just a hint uh, of that tomato flavor. So it was fine, but I wonder if there's a better mixture that they can uh, come up with to make it taste a little bit more like what a, you know, a pizza wing sauce might taste like. Um, I also tried uh, Fireball Eggnog, which um, really, it's just, it's mostly a a branding thing. Fireball, as I'm sure, you know, pretty much everyone knows, is a cinnamon whiskey. Um, And this isn't an alcoholic eggnog. It's just flavored with cinnamon and it's branded as Fireball. Um, What? What a ripoff. I, I know, but it's still very good because it's eggnog with cinnamon. But what you can do, um, and what I did is I actually put real Fireball in it, and so the doubling of the cinnamon in the the eggnog itself and uh, the addition of the Fireball whiskey uh, is really really good. It's um, my uh, when I was old enough to drink, um, one of the things that my mom made made around the holidays, uh, and I started drinking was uh, eggnog with cinnamon schnapps in it which is roughly the same thing, but as you know, schnapps is not necessarily a strong alcohol. So the, the flavor doesn't necessarily feel like it's an alcoholic drink, even though it is. Um, and the fireball whiskey definitely adds more of a kick to it and it still tastes really good. It doesn't really even taste much like a, a strong alcoholic cocktail. So it's, it's very, very good. Um, and speaking of alcohol that has an incredible flavor uh, and is strong, uh, I tried screwball peanut butter whiskey, which Sounds disgusting, and I thought so too. Even me, and the things I love to try, I I had heard that it was good, but I kept being like, "No, why would you ever drink this? What what would you what would you do with it?" Um, and my my dad uh, got some over the holidays, and I tried it, and uh, this is so good. It doesn't even taste uh, like alcohol, and the it, it's it's it seems kind of weird because you feel like you're drinking peanut butter, but it doesn't feel. Uh, gross. It's 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 just a good flavor, and I I've been told I haven't done this yet, but I would like to. I, I just need to get a bottle of my own. That it's really good to put in things like hot chocolate uh, to make a, a you know a chocolate peanut butter hot chocolate. And so uh, I definitely want to try it. But I would count me surprised that a peanut butter whiskey uh, was actually delicious. There you go. Uh, and then there is a uh, a new Mountain Dew that just came out. Uh, this is apparently a new permanent flavor that it will be available everywhere. It has a regular version and a zero sugar version, and it's called Major Melon. Uh, and it's Mountain Dew that is, quote, charged with watermelon. And uh, I've talked about before how water, the water, artificial watermelon flavor is one of my favorite flavors as far as like candies or ices, gummies, and whatnot is concerned. And so when I heard this was coming, I was super pumped because a long time ago, I want to say like when I was in college or something, uh, Mountain Dew had one of their like uh, Dewmocracy things where they introduced like three new flavors and then everyone voted which one would become the permanent one. And one of them had a watermelon uh, flavor. And I want to say it was like watermelon berry or something like that. And it was my favorite of the three. And it just barely missed out on becoming a permanent flavor to Voltage, which I hate. So the fact that they brought this one out and that it's just watermelon uh, is, is great. And I love it. It's um It's not quite as like sugary sweet as uh there was a um there's been some jolly rancher soda that has come out and other watermelon flavored soft drinks and usually they are um quite sweet to the point where you don't really want a lot of them because this one is like a watermelon flavor that's mixed with you know mountain the mountain dew formula it's not quite as overpowering 
uh, and it's uh, it's really good. It's, it's easily one of my new uh, favorite Mountain Dews, and so I'm glad that it's a, a permanent addition to their lineup. That's all I okay, got. Okay, I'm I'm interested to try that. I'm also interested to try those homestyle Rice Krispie treats. Yeah, where can you get you those? It should be any grocery store. I well, I found mine um, on an end cap at Meyer, which is like a it's kind of like a Walmart esque chain that's uh, based in the. Uh, I think just the Midwest. Um, but yeah, I'm, I've seen them at Walmart and I've seen them other places too. So you should be able to get them anywhere. Okay. That brings us to the end of today's Slash Home Daily. You can find more of all of our work at Slash Home.com. You can find this podcast on Apple, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please feel free to send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns to us at Peter at Slash Home.com. And please head on over to our iTunes page. Rate us. Give us a review. Tell your friends. Spread the word. And we'll see you tomorrow. Good one, guys. Yeah, I'm not going to do the book today, Peter. Um, I, we can go to self-recording. I want to talk to everybody about something. Um, okay. I don't know if you guys have been following the news.